This is They Create Worlds, Episode 98, The 100 Most Influential Games, Part 1. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. This is part one of the three-part series where we cover 100 games in 100 minutes, hours, years, no one knows. Alex might know, but I don't. I have no idea. You have no idea? Oh, dear. I have no idea what we're even doing here. Why are we here? Well, I have this wonderful list of 100 games you put together for me. It comes in red, green, and blue flavors. And supposedly we have to talk about it for a while for some reason. Yes. So as we've been teasing in the last couple of episodes, we are, of course, coming right up against the big one zero zero. Just had our four year anniversary not that long ago. And now we're following that up with 100 episodes. And so we figured we'd do something no one has ever done before for their 100th anything and make a list of 100 games. I mean, that's that's new and exciting and innovative, right? Maybe back in 1950. <laughs> Though we are going to do a little twist on this. Most of these kind of lists are like the top 100 or 200 or 500 games of all time, whatever that's supposed to mean, is if you can directly compare John Madden football and Doom, because they're so similar to each other. Occasionally, you get a list that's like the top 100 games in their time, which is still a list of the best games, but it like tries to balance out eras and all of this kind of thing. What you very, very rarely get, one up did it once, is something akin to what we're doing since we're more of a history podcast, which is the 100 most influential games of all time. We're not concerned about the biggest hits, though in the video game industry, being a big hit and being influential on future uh, design decisions and whatnot is often correlated. We're not concerned about the bestest games ever made. We're not concerned about the most popular games ever made. We're just taking a look at 100 games that were very important to getting the video game industry where it is today. So what does that mean in terms of our criteria here? First of all, right up front, let's be clear. This list is for fun. It's not definitive. I'll probably miss something that someone else will be like, oh my gosh, why didn't they talk about that game? It's okay. They want Bubsy. (laughs) Of course they want Bubsy. Bubsy, great game or greatest game? The answer is, of course, it's not the greatest game because there's Bubsy 3D. Oh dear. (laughs) Don't play Bubsy 3D. And for those who may not know, this is being recorded live in front of a live Twitch audience. That's right. So occasionally I will break in with random things that amuse me from chat. (laughs) (laughs) For those that are watching the stream, I'm being lazy and not having Twitch chat up. 
I do most of the talking anyway, so, uh, you know, I don't want to be distracted by that. But Jeff will be monitoring Twitch chat, and he will occasionally interrupt me and be like, hey, somebody said something. Yeah, feel free to interact with us if you're here. We'll do stuff. I mean, it's not obviously like a, a gaming stream where we're going to be constantly interacting with people because we do have like a finished product to put out and Jeff will be very sad in the editing process if half the episode is us just chatting back and forth with people in Twitch. So we're going to save Jeff a little grief and, and only interact uh, occasionally, but you can feel free to vent all of your displeasure at the stupid games that we chose <laughs> in Twitch chat. There you have it. Alrighty. Getting back to the criteria a bit. Yeah, we may miss something that somebody else thinks is important, and that's fine. Obviously, once you get past an obvious 20, 30, 40 games, it becomes more subjective which one you choose, because 100 is a very arbitrary number. I tried to balance the list so that there's at least something from every major genre that's currently popular today and that there's at least a couple of milestones along the road for every significant genre. But, you know, a lot of that, you know, when you're trying to get a hundred, just 100 games, a lot of it is, well, these two games are basically the same level of influence, so which one do you pick? And at some point, you have to make those choices just to fit that arbitrary number of 100. So when faced with those situations, I just, I tried to spread things out so that you had a little bit from every era, a little bit from every kind of platform, etc. A couple other things. A lot of this will be focused on where the AAA games industry is today, as opposed to some of the wonderful stuff that's going on in the indie space. And the reason for that is merely because the indie scene, as we know it today, is fairly new. I mean, you can argue that there's always been an indie scene, right? It starts with type-in listings way back in the day. It moves to shareware. It's on BBSs. There's always been indie games. But what we consider the, the modern indie scene that was really created on platforms like Steam and Xbox, uh, XBLA, and uh, on more modern platforms now, that's such a new field that it's hard to say which of the games that are kind of big today are going to be the kind of games that are remembered later, but there's enough history of the AAA industry. You can kind of say, okay, these are the big AAA games today, and it's pretty clear to see the chain of events that led up to them. So that's that's kind of where the focus is. We're not including any modern games on the list, because even with AAA, it is way too early to see which games that are popular today and have been successful today and have been widely played today are going to be influencing the games that come out 10, 20 years from now. I think we have one game from the 2010s in here, maybe two, but the majority of the games are 70s, 80s, and 90s, and we have a, a good representation of the 2000s as well, but 2010s just not, because we can say what's popular today, we can say what the kids are playing today, but we can't say whether that's going to be uh, influential for tomorrow. So that's kind of the framework of the list. We're doing this in three episodes, so we've divided it into three parts. We're going to be covering this 40-40-20. 40 games in the first episode, 40 games in the second episode, 20 games in the final episode. I've got them loosely grouped. We are not doing a countdown. 
assigning a numerical value in something like that, this, especially when games in different genres play so differently, it's apples and oranges comparisons, is really not useful in, in my mind. But I kind of divided them into broad categories, and those broad categories kind of work chronologically a little bit, so that the first episode will be largely focused on earlier games from the 70s and 80s, and the second episode will be largely focused on later games from the 90s and 2000s, though there will be overlap. And then the final episode, I did pick 20 games that I think are particularly influential for one reason or another. Again, that list is not definitive in terms of these are absolutely positively the 20 most influential games ever, but they're definitely all games that would be in the running for 20 most influential games ever. Those are also not numbered. We'll probably do those in a strict chronological order. Again, as a way of of building up to that final episode, the Big 100, we did single out 20 in that manner. So other than that, there's no numerical ranking. There's some rhyme or reason behind what was chosen and what wasn't. But at the end of the day, at some point, you just have to say, well, you know, this game seems good enough. That's where we stand in terms of how this big list we're about to do works. Fantastic. All right. How do you want me to start off listing off this beautiful list of 40 things, starting with red? That's right. We've color-coded RGB. So we have these kind of broad categories, and the first broad category I have that we'll kind of go through is really early influential games. Some of the first games that kick-started particular movements or particular genres. Now, you'll obviously see some holes in this because we've got a top 20 that we're saving for the very end. When a couple of fairly obvious games don't show up, there's a good reason for that. Some of these will be well-known, some of these will be obscure, some of these we've talked about before, some of them we haven't. Let's get right into it. As we've talked about before, the first electronic games were created in the 1950s. Not a single one of those games created in the 1950s had any impact, measurable impact whatsoever on what came afterwards. One other thing I should have said about this list up front is we are not in any case interested in quote-unquote firsts. There are a few games that are on this list because they were kind of first at something, but we're not interested in firsts, we're interested in chains of influence. You know, a game like Midsack Pool, which we've, I think, talked about in an early episode at some point, which was a mainframe game in the 1950s that was the first game to have real-time graphics. That's great. I'm glad they did it. Somebody needed to do it. But nobody looked at that and was like, aha, I see that, so now I'm going to do this. There is one chain of influence that you can pull from this period, and that brings me to another point. We are sticking entirely to games on this thing. There are arguments that certain pieces of hardware could be influential, that certain pen and paper or board games could be influential, or that certain mods to games could be very influential. But we're not including anything like that on the list just because we want to we want to stick specifically to electronic games and main releases of electronic games, not mods. So, there'll be a couple of games on this list actually later where when you hear the game title you'll be like, "Huh? Why is that an influential game?" 
and it will be because it had an influential mods. We're going to take mods into account. It's just it won't be the mod that makes the list. It will be the game that makes the list. Because if you have a chain of influence here, obviously the mod wouldn't have existed in the way it ended up if the original game wasn't there to be moddable. Another thing to get out of the way there. So if there's one thing you can take from the 1950s that was influential, it's the entire concept of real-time computing. You get to the first influential video game, computer game, electronic game, whatever, Space War, which we're not talking about yet. I guess that's a spoiler alert for episode three. You get to that point because of advances in real-time computing. So there's a direct chain from the Whirlwind Project at MIT to the creation of the Digital Equipment Corporation by people that worked on Project Whirlwind, and then from the creation of the PDP to this game. And there's another direct link from Jack Dennis, who worked on Whirlwind and then was like, students should be able to do their own stuff because I was able to do my own stuff on Whirlwind and everyone should be able to do that. And there's a chain from there to I'm going to have outside hackers do stuff on the computer and that leads to space war. And then there's also the fact that time sharing came entirely out of a chain from Whirlwind. So if you're just talking about the top 100 concepts in video game history, then you could pull like Whirlwind from the 1940s and 1950s into this. But we're not going to do that, even though I literally spent like five minutes talking about it or something, which means we've technically done it. But there are rules. They don't have to make sense. That isn't actually part of this, even though it is. It's sort of like whose line is it anyway? (laughs) Sure. That's right. The points don't matter. So anyway, having said that, we're going to just forget about the 1950s. There were important developments then, but influential games, meh. We're also going to largely forget about the 1960s. As I said, there will be a very big representative from the 1960s coming up later, but a lot of what happened in the 1960s was very fragmented and did not influence things going forward. Once you get time-sharing systems, which is something we did talk about. We had a whole episode on time-sharing. You have a few games from the 1960s that do permeate more and are still remembered today. Most of those games are not big enough, are not influential enough to make the cut in the top 100, even though some of those did persist and did influence things. I did choose one random game from that time period. I mean, one carefully considered, delicately whittled down from a huge list using the most advanced scientific methods possible. I promise you that we used the most beautifully balanced handcrafted darts and threw them at the most beautifully illustrated, wonderful dartboards in order to, you know, put this list together. Nothing but the highest quality for our list. Definitely. But I did want to highlight one game from this period because it's not a game that many people know about and it does have a chain of influence that is fairly significant, even if it's if it's kind of minor. And it even broke my rule and it's not even a AAA game. So there we go. So the one game I'm going to talk about is a game called Pot Shot. I think we probably talked about this game in our time-sharing episode just a little bit. But the first significant time-sharing service was the Dartmouth time-sharing service uh, at Dartmouth. And we talked all about the history of that in our time-sharing episode. 
So there's no need for us to go into all of that history again. We have enough to cover in this episode without Alex going off on two million tangents. He'll get off on one million tangents, but we got to draw the line somewhere. But the important thing is, is that was the first system that kind of really spread time sharing widely. And of course, it's the beginning of the basic programming language. Another thing that Dartmouth had is it did have one of the very early graphical terminals. We talked about how on the very early systems, you really just had teletypes clattering away, printing out paper to uh, serve as your interface with what exactly is the computer doing now. In the late 60s, they actually got one of the uh, first terminals created by a company called uh, Tektronics. Tektronics was one of the very first companies that made a graphical terminal. They were actually inspired by another time-sharing system, which was the long-running Project Mac going on at MIT. MIT had decided to use some new Tektronics tubes that were able to do kind of a form of screen memory and used those in a graphical display terminal. And then Tektronics saw that and was like, hey, this is kind of neat. And so they built their own display terminal that was based on the uh, Project Mac slash Multics terminal and made it commercially available. And then they donated one of the first one of these to uh, Dartmouth in about 1967, I think it was. So Dartmouth had a graphical terminal very early, and there was a professor there by the name of Arthur Lerman that uh, decided to make use of this and have some fun with it. So the Tektronics terminals were kind of finicky in what they could do. They couldn't scroll text because they were very basic CRTs, and they would draw the whole screen and that there were kind of two tubes in there, I think. And so, like, one had a screen ready to go, and then the next one drew a second screen, kind of like doing page flipping on an Apple II, I guess, except nowhere near the same thing from a technical standpoint. But the same idea that you can constantly have another screen ready to draw while you've got the one screen up. Sort of like a uh, poor man's way of doing caching or really, really poor interlacing. Yeah, yeah, something like that. So it couldn't scroll text, though, as a result of that, because it couldn't update a screen fast enough. It was still like drawing a whole screen. So it it was an imperfect terminal, but you could have some graphical stuff on it. And one thing that Dartmouth was always very big on, which was different from some of the other institutions, and we did talk about this in our time-sharing episode, is that they encouraged people having fun, and they encouraged people making games and playing games because they were all about familiarizing ordinary people with computers, making ordinary people comfortable using computers. And what better way to do that than be like, hey, let's come play a game. Look, computers are fun. Yay. So Lerman was very much in that camp. He did a lot of complex physics modeling stuff using the graphical terminal. But he also created a game, and that game was Potshot. It was a game that taught you a little bit about angles and trajectory and all of this. You had two artillery batteries on each side of the screen. Stop me if you've heard this one before. Hmm. And there's a mountain that you can place somewhere in the middle of the screen, and it can be varying heights, and you can vary the location a little bit, but it's always in between these two artillery units. Then each artillery unit 
calculates the angle and power of their shot and then takes a pot shot. Hey, there's the name of the game. Wow. At the other player and tries to, uh, you know, destroy them by getting their artillery set up in the right way. That's a concept that we never heard from again, right? Definitely not. Why would we have artillery things shooting at each other constantly? (laughs) You know, worms, tanks. Scorched earth. Scorched earth. So many games. And, uh, you know, up to the present day, because you can take this concept right up to the present day with Angry Birds. I mean, Angry Birds has been done to death now. But Angry Birds was the next logical extension of the of the worms thing. So the way that Potshot got out there, actually, because Potshot was just on the DTSS, it wasn't widespread and graphics weren't widespread, but it ended up making its way to HP. People at Hewlett Packard discovered the game and they programmed their own version of it that could run on their computers with a graphical display, and then they used it as one of their prime demo programs for a while while they were selling their mini computers with their graphical displays. And so that's what kind of got it out into the world, and then when microcomputers started coming out, you started getting versions on there. The CompuColor, which was a very obscure computer that was very expensive but was the first kind of highly graphically capable microcomputer, had a version of this on there, and then you got a Commodore PET version of it as as one of the early games on there. The Astrocade had a version of this. The version on the Astrocade was kind of different from this through line from the original Pot Shot, so it's hard to say exactly if they were inspired by that game or not, because it plays out a little differently, but it's a similar idea. But like the CompuColor one and the Commodore PET one are pretty clearly derived from the Dartmouth slash HP one. And the reason for that is they both have that mountain in the middle. I mean, obviously, the idea, okay, you have a gun over here, you have a gun over here, calculate angle. Yeah, that's one of those things that a lot of different people could think of. But generally, if they also decided to have a single mountain of varying height in the middle of the screen, that's probably a direct influence from Potshot because, I mean, that's a kind of strange thing to just decide independently to put in the middle of the screen right so i think you can draw a direct line you know artillery games became one of the first indie chains i mean not it's it's not the first indie game and we're not even like i said going to be getting into indie games that much but it's such a simple thing to do and you don't need very complex graphics So it's one of those concepts that caught on with independent game makers very early. The Astrocade had a a basic cartridge, and people could make their own simple games in basic. And so there was an Astrocade artillery game that was made in basic. And of course, Scorched Earth was one of the very, very popular shareware games in the mid-1990s. There's definitely a sense of very indie in this, which is kind of appropriate since, I mean, I don't know if you can really call Angry Birds indie since Rovio became a super huge corporation on the back of it and then did it to death. Well, you can sort of view it as a indie title that then became so huge it became mainstream. Right, exactly. Yeah, so the first game, 
Potshot because you can trace a line straight from Potshot through Scorched Earth and Worms through to Angry Birds and one of the big mobile franchises. That's Potshot, and if we talk about every game to that length, we're never ending this podcast. Nope. I mean, after all, Quarter Pass says he's glad to see that you're keeping the uh, game list talking about him to under 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, in all seriousness, I spent a little more time on Potshot because we haven't talked about it much before. Games that we have already covered on this thing, I will talk about a lot less. So, that it will be uneven coverage, but there's your review for They Create Worlds. They Create Worlds, a podcast with uneven coverage. There you go. So now we will move on to the 1970s and mainframe games in the 1970s. This is the first period where you see some games that really do have through lines that make them still very relevant today. Because by the 1970s, you have more established timesharing systems. You have more established computer labs. You have more standardization. The PDP-10 mainframe, for instance, did a lot to standardize what was going on on big computers. You had a lot more avenues for trading software, getting software out there. So that's where you really see most of the first chains of influence, even in the non-commercial sector. So the next game we want to talk about is Star Trek. And we just talked about Star Trek recently, so I won't go into all of this depth again. See, we're going to get through this one very fast. The core concepts of Star Trek are basically... Managing your power, you have to balance power between shields, weapons, engines, and kind of this tactical strategy, go around and have to hunt everything down on a map. Now, the the tactical side of it is really not that influential on the whole. I mean, there were some games that did that same kind of thing. For instance, we talked about how Automated Simulations got its start with Starfleet Orion that was basically taking the Star Trek concept of one guy against the universe and changed it into two big groups of guys duking out with each other. And that's what got that company started. So that's an influence. But what's really actually influential about it is the whole strategic map and energy management thing. Because Star Trek, even though it's a turn-based strategy game, actually becomes the main product that defines the entire genre of space flight simulators. It does that through the game Star Raiders. Spoiler alert, that game might come up again later. Spoiler alert for the top 20? No, it's actually part of this list. So we can talk about it now. See, we're even combining entries now. Ooh, goodies. So see, we're going to get through this. We're never going to get through this. Basically, Star Raiders was created at Atari by Doug Neubauer. Doug Neubauer was a chip designer. We haven't talked about this game very much, so I have to go into a little more background. He was a chip designer, and he created the sound chip, the Pokey, for the Atari 8-bit computer systems. And he kind of got his work on that chip done ahead of schedule. So he was like, okay, well, I've got some free time. Well, why don't I make a game for this computer? He never actually played Star Trek, but he was aware of it, and he had watched other people play it. So when he was creating his own game, he wasn't setting out to create a version of Star Trek for a computer platform, a microcomputer platform, I mean. But he was taking certain elements that he liked. He liked the strategic map, the idea that you see the whole galaxy, you have star bases where you can replenish, and you have enemies here, enemies here, enemies here. You have to go travel, and you have to take them out before they move around and do something bad. He took that part of it, and he took the energy management part of it. And then created a first-person real-time game where you're blowing up things in space, because 
who doesn't like blowing up things in space? This is a period of time when Star Wars is big. There have already been a couple of games like that in the arcade. So he combines the energy management and the tactical, strategic, whatever, map with real-time space combat to create Star Raiders, which is kind of the first really popular space flight simulator. Not that we call them space flight simulators, but they're really not because none of them really simulate what it's like to actually fly in space. You know, they should really call them space Star Wars simulators instead of space flight simulators because they're all very much in the Star Wars mode of how space combat works, which is just like World War II fighter planes, except there's stars in the background. Star Raiders is kind of the foundational game in that entire genre of product. And Star Raiders was one of the first killer apps for microcomputer games as well. It was the first game that kind of showed people like, okay, these microcomputers can actually do something. Because most of the games before that, they were ports of things that were on mainframe computer systems, many of them text-based. So there are a lot of text adventures, which are fun, but somewhat limited in terms of their, you know, audiovisual capabilities, obviously, or their fast action. Uh, you know, there's lots of Lunar Lander games, there's lots of strategy games, there's all of this. But Star Raiders was like, okay, here's a game that is just as thrilling as the latest games in the arcade, and you can play it in the home. And so that was kind of a watershed moment for computer games. It leads directly to the whole popular space flight simulator stuff from Wing Commander to TIE Fighter to Free Space. That genre of game is not so big anymore, but there's still kind of vestiges of it. I mean, you still you have EVE Online, which is very popular. You have Elite Dangerous, which is very popular, kind of these MMO style space games. And you don't get to those games without first Star Trek and then Star Raiders leading the way. And that is why those two games are both very critical and on our list of 100 games. And boom, two at once. We're going to make it. Alrighty. So the other game that I want to talk about, or the other space that I want to talk about, is the Play-Doh system. The Play-Doh system, it's hard to just pick a game or two. Like, Play-Doh is more influential as an entire infrastructure and an entire ecosystem then you can point to a particular game. You know, it's, it's tempting to break the rules and just put Play-Doh on the top 100. But we believe in rules here at the TCW podcast, I guess. We do? Yes. Maybe. I don't know. I thought the rules didn't matter. The rules don't matter, except when they do. It's complicated. Okay. Too arbitrary. TCW podcast is way too complicated to be summed up in terms of rules or no rules. So I didn't just put Play-Doh on the list, but I chose two games on the Play-Doh system that kind of sum up between them most of the important innovations that came out of the Play-Doh system. So for those that don't know, because I don't think we've done an episode on this, though we've probably mentioned it at some point. We have mentioned it, but we haven't actually covered it. Right. Play-Doh was an educational, time-shared mainframe system that was run out of the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana. It was made entirely for education, strictly for education. That Play-Doh term is an acronym. It stands for Programmed Logic for Automatic Teaching Operations. One of those things where, you know, they had an acronym in mind, and then they're like, well, now we have to make this fit our project. So 
Let's string together a bunch of random words that sound intelligent. The two main interesting things about the Plato system, we won't go in depth on it now. There's lots of interesting things about the Plato system. For the purposes of this episode, because I'm supposed to be keeping this short, spoiler alert, I'm not. The two important things about this is that it connected hundreds of people across the entire country to the system. It was a a time-sharing system with terminals spread out, particularly throughout the Midwest. Places like Iowa and Indiana were major hubs, but even beyond the Midwest as well. There were terminals that people could tie into it. And it had ridiculous graphics for the time. The plasma screen was invented by the good people at Plato. And not only did they have plasma screens, they were touch screens. They had plasma touch screens in the 1970s. That's insane to think about today, considering that plasma screens really became in vogue, I want to say in the early 2000s, and then sort of fell away to LCDs, and then touch screens have really taken off, and I would say in the last decade or so. Right. Now, these were monochrome plasma screens. They were not multicolored. The gas they were using was an orange gas, so the screens were orange, monochrome orange. But still, you had incredibly high-resolution graphics for the time, and you could have massively multiplayer stuff. And they had their own version of BASIC. I don't mean that it was an offshoot of BASIC, but I mean they had a programming language with a similar concept called Tutor, which, like BASIC, was created for ease of use so that anyone could get in and start making stuff without having too much knowledge of programming in advance. And they encouraged other people to make modules for the system. Now, one thing that did set them apart from Dartmouth is they were grant-funded to specifically go out there and create new revolutions in education. So games were really kind of frowned upon officially. You weren't supposed to be making games. You weren't supposed to be playing games. Unofficially, they were tolerated as long as they didn't get in the way of other stuff. But there was a constant cat and mouse thing going on where someone would create a game, would get deleted, create a game, would get deleted. These people over here would be playing a game during regular hours, knock that off, we're shutting you down. There was that constant cat and mouse. It was not nearly as encouraged as, say, Dartmouth encouraged games. And I I think part of that, too, is that, of course, you know, when you're talking about games on the Dartmouth time-sharing system, you're talking about very simple, most likely single-player text-based games. So that kind of thing is easy to kind of tolerate or encourage. When you're talking about games where literally dozens of people are playing at once in the same game, and you're talking about big graphical games that take up a lot more memory and a lot more processing power to run, you can see why they couldn't just let that, like, explode over the entire system when they did have day jobs they were supposed to be doing. So that's Plato, and there's two games I want to single out. When Plato games started, they were fairly primitive. And uh, they were what were called big board games, because what they had is they essentially had matchmaking services. I mean, this was kind of the beginning in a way of online matchmaking services, too. They also had instant messaging and electronic mail, you know, all sorts of stuff. A lot of the things that we have become reliant on in the modern world seem to have had that start here. 
Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, some of this stuff was developed in parallel at other places, too. But there's no doubt that Plato's impact on the wider computing infrastructure is absolutely humongous. The very early games were kind of what were called big board games. And these would be two-player contests, two-dimensional graphics, and you'd kind of pair up with people in a chat room, and then you'd go off and have your little combat with each other. And there was a, uh, a version of Space War was one of the very first one of these. And there were other games kind of like that as well. Then comes along a guy in uh, about uh, 1973 by the name of John Daleski, who is a student at Iowa State University. At this point, Iowa State had a terminal or two. Iowa State is pretty strong in uh, computer science and had been for some time. But not many people were using the terminals there yet. Uh, They hadn't really been discovered yet because this was kind of far away from home base. But John Daleski ends up discovering these terminals at Iowa State, and uh, he started playing around on there, and he decided that he was going to make a game. And the, the wrinkle with his game, compared to what other people were doing, is that he was going to make it multiplayer. At this point, all of the games on the system are just one-on-one, even though the system can accommodate lots and lots of people. But Daleski wanted to create a system where multiple people could play the the same game at once, which seemed like it should be possible, considering all the people that could chat with each other and, and do all of these other things. In so doing, he connected with a guy out in Indiana by the name of Silas Warner, who is a, a very big name in early computer game history. He's somewhat forgotten today because most of his most significant contributions were in the very early days of the industry, and then he unfortunately passed away, so he's not around today to go around attending retro conventions and reminding everybody how awesome he was. He was a physics major at Indiana. The physics department at the school actually got a Play-Doh terminal, so that's how he discovered it, and he was immediately hooked, and that just changed the entire trajectory of his life and career at that point. So he and Delesk collaborated with each other because Delesk was talking on the system about, hey, I've got this great game I want to build. And then Warner was like, hey, that sounds kind of awesome. Let's do this together. And so they kind of did. They kind of collaborated, though Delesk took the lead on the very first version of it, and the idea was Delesk's. But Warner got involved and kind of tested it out, made some uh, design comments, and then added a few features to the final version, or the final version of the first version, I should say, kind of the 1.0. That's Empire. Empire started out as basically just a strategic game. It's very much inspired by Star Trek, and I don't mean the Star Trek computer game. In this case, I'm talking about the Star Trek television show, because there's Klingons and there's Federation and there's Orions. They had to change some of the names eventually to be safe, but it's all very Star Trekky names. And basically, you have ships and you start with a single planet and you send your ship out to another planet, and then an automatic combat resolves and you either conquer the planet or don't, and then you move someplace else and wash, rinse, repeat. 
in later versions of the game, the combat got more sophisticated so that you actually had some choices in how combat played out. But in the very first version of the game, it just was handled automatically. Won't go into too much more detail about Empire because we are supposed to, like, get this episode done in a semi-reasonable amount of time. We're almost at a one-hour mark. Yeah, but not all of that's episode. (laughs) We will go through some of the others faster. I promise, mostly. Anyway, the big thing about Empire is that it was the first multiplayer game on the Play-Doh system, and multiplayer became a huge part of Play-Doh after that. And it was also the game that launched a thousand Play-Doh games, because the source code of it was widely disseminated. It was the game that really awakened everybody on the system to the potential of games, that we can do things more complicated than these simple one-on-one shooting things. And a lot of people use the Empire source code as the base to start creating their own stuff. And so the entire Play-Doh game ecosystem cannot be traced only back to Empire. There were some other influential games as well. But Empire is probably the most influential game in getting the Play-Doh stuff going. And because the Play-Doh stuff is so important, as we'll see in a second, we give it pride of place on our list. The unofficial top 20. Yes. So what is really influential about Play-Doh, and I'll try to keep this brief, is RPGs. The most influence that was directly applicable from what was going on on Play-Doh to what was going on in the rest of the world after that is the RPGs. Dungeon crawls. Play-Doh was active at the time that Dungeons & Dragons was just coming out, was just starting to permeate college campuses, and there's a lot of correlation between people that are Dungeons & Dragons people and people that are computer game creators, and I don't think that's an accident. Because, of course, what is Dungeons & Dragons except a set of predefined rules that you as the DM then take to create your own story, and oh, by the way, sometimes you feel that you can do something better than the rules does, and so you introduce your own house rules on top of the basic rules. And what is programming except having a language which has a predefined way of doing things, a predefined structure, and then going inside that structure and creating your own thing within that structure, and oh, by the way, I think I can do this routine better than the way the programming language does it, so I'm going to create my own subroutine that makes this more efficient, etc. So I don't think it's a big surprise at all that there's a big overlap between D&D Dungeon Masters and do-it-yourself hacker computer programmers, because there's a lot of similarities between those two things, if that makes sense. That it does. So, naturally, Dungeon Crawls started appearing. The very first one, and the one that we put on there, the list, just because it was first, is The Dungeon. It is more commonly known as Pettit 5 out in circles, because when you created a program for the Play-Doh system, it was what was called a module. You created your programs within modules, and modules would be assigned to projects and modules would be named based on the project they were part of. Rusty Rutherford, the guy that created the dungeon, was using a space for a particular educational program, and this educational program had been given the modules Pettit 1, Pettit 2, Pettit 3, Pettit 4, Pettit 5, abbreviations for the project. And so he made the game in module Pettit 5, but he actually, the title screen, he actually gave it the name The Dungeon. It's a dungeon crawl. You fight monsters, you gather treasure, it's overhead view, you explore the dungeon, the dungeon's revealed as you go through it, two-dimensional, and yeah, so it's a dungeon crawl, derived loosely from Dungeons & Dragons. So that sets a whole chain of stuff into motion. There was another group of guys, Gary Wood and Ron Weisenhunt, who were like, this dungeon thing's really cool. 
but it keeps getting deleted. And it was. It was constantly deleted because it was created in a place you weren't supposed to, and games are kind of sketchy. So they're like, this game's hard to find. So we're going to create our own game. And so they created a game called D&D. It was another dungeon crawl. This one was actually kind of a multi-level linked affair where you descended down into a dungeon, found an item, killed a dragon that was guarding the item, and then had to bring the item back to the top of the dungeon again. So there were multiple floors, exploration, dungeon crawling, monsters, equipment, yada, yada, yada. I have to start explaining these games less and less as we go. And then D&D became very popular on the system. But while D&D was being created, it took them a long time to kind of figure out how to do that. And so there was this other set of guys that were like, hey, this is taking them a long time. I wonder what's so hard about this. We should try making our own. And so these guys created a game called Moria. But the twist on Moria is that they made it three-dimensional. So it was wireframe dungeons that you were roaming through in three dimensions. So it's like, great, so now we've made it to three-dimensional spaces in Dungeon Crawls. And then Moria inspired a couple other games, Obliat and Avatar particularly. Avatar was particularly impressive because it was 3D Dungeon Crawl with multiplayer. It was essentially one of the first MMOs, so to speak, though you know they didn't call them that back then. So Moria begats those games, and then a couple of Play-Doh guys named uh, Robert Woodhead and Andrew Greenberg are like, all of these dungeon crawls are cool, and now it's microcomputer times, and we should make dungeon crawls like for microcomputers. I'm way oversimplifying here because that's what we're going to have to do now. And so they were like, let's make a dungeon crawl just like the ones we played on Play-Doh with the similar treasures, the similar character system, the similar spells, the similar three-dimensional dungeon exploration, and that's wizardry. Alrighty. So wizardry which is also on our list, so we can talk about it now. Wizardry directly springs from all of these dungeon crawls on the Play-Doh. And Wizardry was one of the most popular computer games on the Apple II in the very early days of the Apple II. It was one of two games that really established the role-playing game as one of the biggest forces on microcomputers. So any RPG that you're playing today owes an incredible debt of gratitude to Wizardry for starting this whole thing on microcomputers, and Wizardry holds a huge debt of gratitude to the dungeon for starting this entire thing on Play-Doh. So that's kind of it for the early stuff on mainframes, mini computers, hackers doing their own thing, non-commercial industry from the early days. Now we'll move into some of the first commercial games. And obviously there'll be a couple of big ones missing here because they reached the top 20. I do want to give a shout out to Computer Space. In other words, it's on the list. Computer Space was a failure in its own time. Computer Space is not on the list for being first. Because Computer Space didn't really launch the arcade video game industry. And it was, failure's too strong a word, but it was not hugely successful and it did not lead to things getting really established. Computer space is on here for the chains of influence because Steve Bristow decided in 1974 that he's like, you know, that computer space thing where you're flying around and trying to shoot something else down, that's a good idea, but it kind of didn't work because physics and multi-button control schemes. And early arcade players didn't know what to make of the physics, and the multi-button control scheme was terrible, 
as an introductory control scheme when no one's done a video game before. So Steve Bristow is basically like, I'm going to take computer space and I'm going to simplify the heck out of it and try again. So he set it on Earth, on the ground, instead of up in space, so all the physics nonsense went away. And then he changed the control scheme because he's like, I drove a Caterpillar in my youth. You know, it was like a summer job or whatever. And those are really simple. You have two levers. Push both levers forward. Go forward. Push both levers back. Go back. Push one lever one way and one lever lever the other way. You turn, either left or right, depending on which combination of levers you've done. So I'm just going to have two levers, just like a caterpillar or just like a tank. And those will be the controls. And you're going to have a tank. It's going to be on Earth. There's going to be no dumb physics. And that's going to be my new game. And it's going to be Tank. Tank was hugely successful. It was the game that broke through distributor exclusivity, as we talked about in our Atari episode. It sold like 15,000 units. It was the basis for combat, which was the early system seller on the Atari VCS, because people had a lot of fun playing each other in that. It kind of established the idea of the one-on-one shooting dueling game in the arcade, and that was one of the major genres in the very early days of the industry in the 1970s. So Tank, hugely influential, but we didn't put Tank on the list, we put Computer Space on the list, because without Computer Space, there's no Tank. The other game that Computer Space is very important for is Asteroids, because basically the creation of Asteroids was, okay, there's this Space Invaders game, and it's really popular, so we should have a shooter. But I don't like this idea of just having this gun battery at the bottom of the screen and very limited movement and very limited use of the screen. So Lyle Rains, the guy that's coming up with this, is like, what would be really cool is if we took that kind of shoot everything on the screen thing that Space Invaders has put together, but do the whole computer space thing with computer space physics and computer space style button controls and merge those together to create a game. So Asteroids has several influences, but one of those influences is computer space. So even though Computer Space in its own time did not launch the video game industry and does not deserve to be on our list of 100 most influential games just for being first, it does deserve to be on the list because Tank and Asteroids were both hugely important games in their own time for moving the industry forward. And neither of them would have existed in exactly the same form if Computer Space hadn't come first. So, two games that I want to take in tandem here, but they're both on the list. Those games are the games that were the foundation of driving games. And those are Grand Track 10 and Speed Race. There are two different philosophies to driving games. Grand Track 10 is about having everything in an overhead view on a single screen and having a really twisty, curvy track that you have to guide your car around. Sometimes there are obstacles, sometimes there aren't but the kind of main gameplay feature is that curvy track. And Grand Track 10 actually came out of a pen and paper game uh, that was in the mathematical games column of Scientific American, which was a source of several games, including most famously Life, which uh, did not make the cut on our list. But Grand Track 10 is another one that came out of Martin Gardner's games column in the magazine. It was a game where you kind of did angle calculations and all sorts of pen and paper nonsense and 
Steve Mayer at Cyan Engineering, Atari's Think Tank, was like, you know, we could probably represent that whole twisty-turny, curvy thing on a video game. And so they made it, and it was the first video driving game. Firsts are not always significant, but in this case, driving games have been such an important part of the entire infrastructure of video gaming that it deserves a shout-out just for being first. And there are a lot of games that followed in its footsteps, even into the 80s, in terms of their main style of doing games being overhead view, twisty-turvy, lots of curves. So it was very influential in that sense. Speed Race, which was created in Japan by uh, Tomohiro Nishikado, who would be later much more famous for Space Invaders, was based on pre-existing electromechanical driving games, particularly a game by Casco called Mini Drive, which had a model of a car driving down a straight road. There was kind of a drum or a uh, canvas or whatever on a conveyor belt that was constantly spinning to give the illusion that you were driving down a road, and then there'd be other cars that you had to avoid. Then there was a similar game that Taito did as well, Super Road 7, that had the same kind of idea with the conceit that there were a lot more cars showing up that you had to avoid that were painted on their own disc on this uh, machine. So there had been some driving games on Electromechanical that had done something similar, but Speed Race was the one that translated it into video, and it was the first one that had you, like, driving down a track. It was still overhead view, but you were driving in a straight line, avoiding other cars. So uh, any racing game that had you driving down a road and having to avoid obstacles and avoid other cars really takes more of their influence from Speed Race than from Grand Track 10. I could have just picked one of them, but they came out so close together and had so different ways of doing everything that it kind of made sense to list them both separately. But Speed Race begat specifically Monaco GP from Sega, which was like the Iron Man of video game earnings. Like it was still appearing on top 10 earnings charts or top 30 earnings charts in like 1987, which is insane because it came out in 1979. So it was like the little game that could. And really games like Turbo and Pole Position and the games that really established the modern look of the racing game, they built on what Speed Race did first, even though Speed Race was overhead view and and a little differently set up. So Grand Track 10 and Speed Race, the foundations of driving. Fantastic. And in the early history, we only have two more in that list. That's right. Early console games, there's not many early console games that one really should talk about because most of the early console games are derivative of what's going on in the arcade. In terms of chains of influence, there's not much there. I did just want to do a brief shout out, and it will actually be brief, to Table Tennis on the Odyssey. As most of the people listening probably are aware because it's a pretty well-known story by now, we have Pong because of Table Tennis. Nolan Bushnell was not thinking of doing a game like Pong as Atari's first product. The only reason that Pong ever happened was because Nolan Bushnell attended a demonstration of the Odyssey. The table tennis game was there on the Odyssey. He was like, well, this will be a good test project for Al Alcorn. He should make a table tennis game. And so he was like, go do that. And then the game ended up being fun. And Pong is the game that really launched the video arcade industry. It was a bit of a fad but it still kind of launched the industry. And you don't get Pong without table tennis. 
So just wanted to mention it briefly. The credit for table tennis really goes to Bill Rush. People know that Ralph Baer is the person that led the development of the Magnavox Odyssey. But Bill Rush, who was one of the engineers, other engineers on the team, he was the one that looked at the system, which at that point only had two spots that it could generate, each of which was controlled by the player. And they were having trouble coming up with fun games. And then Bill Rush was the one that said, what if you put a third dot on the screen? And it was controlled by the machine instead of controlled by the players. And then you could have a tennis game. Bill Rush is the guy that, in that case, we have to thank for this. And that's all I want to say about table tennis on the Odyssey. Last game in the early influencers, and we will just cover this briefly because we've covered it in depth before. That's Breakout. Breakout's a little later than these other games, but all of the games on the early win influencers are kind of pre-Space Invader products. Breakout is influential for three reasons. We won't go into the development of the game. Everyone knows about Waz and Jobs, yada yada. Three major reasons that Breakout is hugely influential and deserves to be on the list. First of all, it's the game that opened up Japan. Japan did not have video game fever before Breakout. Video games were there. Video games did okay. Electromechanical shooting games were still more popular. Metal games, those slot machine type things that we've talked about, were more popular. Video was not really finding an identity in the country. And then Breakout came. It was a huge success. It was cloned by everybody. Companies as diverse as Irem, Konami, Data East were not in the video game industry at all until Breakout came out. And uh, a Breakout clone was the first game they made. SNK is another one in that category. So it launched half the companies in the industry. It launched video games into popularity in Japan. So the Japanese impact on the industry would not have uh, developed in the same way without Breakout. Second major influence is that it was working on Breakout and putting that game together that was one of the main guiding forces behind Wozniak's creation of the Apple II. He created the Apple I based on his work with making intelligent terminals for time-sharing systems, which was something that was very briefly in vogue. Make your own terminal in your home to connect to a time-sharing service. This was quickly co-opted by home computers because then, you know, your home computer was a computer and you could still dial into a time-sharing service if you had a modem. But the Apple II was where he was like, okay, I want to make a computer where I can play Breakout. That was basically one of the guiding forces behind the game. The reason that it had the colorful bitmap screen is so he could emulate Breakout. The Apple II originally shipped with paddle controllers alongside its keyboard. Uh, you know, this is pre-mouse days, and it shipped with paddle controllers, so you could play Breakout right from the get-go. So the Apple II, this hugely influential platform in computer games, Wozniak would have made something whether he had worked on Breakout or not. I mean, it was just in his nature to keep tinkering. But kind of the way the Apple II exists the way it does is because Wozniak did Breakout. So that's influence number two. Influence number three goes back to Japan, and that's that Breakout was the direct precursor to Space Invaders. Because Nishikata was basically like, I want to make a game that's like Breakout, where you're at the bottom of the screen, objects on the top of the screen, and you have to clear everything from the screen. But I'm going to make some changes, so we'll make it a shooting game instead. And, oh, this is boring now as a shooting game, because what made Breakout exciting is the balls bouncing around, ricocheting all over the place and you have to get your paddle in the right place to catch it. And if you're just shooting targets at the bottom of the screen straight up, there's nothing fun going on. 
how do I make this better? And he was like, I know, I'll have the target shoot at the player. The entire start of shoot 'em ups and shooting games as we know them today, Space Invaders, obviously, is probably going to appear later in this series of episodes, but Breakout is such a huge influence on Space Invaders that it also deserves to be here. So that is the hugely influential Breakout, and we're through our first batch of games. Yay! Woohoo! Okay, Jeff, I'll let you call out stuff randomly, and we'll do some of that, and we'll get through some of these pretty quickly, theoretically. Theoretically, huh? But we always like you going on and on, and I don't have any clue about this one game here. Oh, so you can start with that one. Probably horribly mispronounced this one, but it is... Well, I'll laugh at you. It's okay. Ianko Alien. Close. Very close. I'll probably then mispronounce it too after I said that, but I think it's Hyankyo Alien. Hyankyo? Yeah, Hyankyo. I think. We think. We don't know. Any Japanese professionals in the audience? Yeah, right. And then someone who knows Japanese will just, uh, you know, shake their heads at me. Hyankyo Alien is a very, very important game that nobody in the West necessarily really knows much about, but it, it had a huge influence in the Japanese industry. It's a maze game where you're running around this maze and there are these alien creatures that are pursuing you. And in order to defeat those aliens, you have to dig holes and then lure these aliens into the holes. And then once the aliens fall into the holes, you have to then cover them up in the holes in order to stop them. You're clearing the screen of all of these aliens, and you have a time limit in which to do it. The game was created in 1979 by a group of university students at the University of Tokyo's Theoretical Science Group. We will go into this one in a little more detail than some of the others, because again, we haven't talked about it much. But basically what happened is Space Invaders hit big, and then Space Invaders collapsed. We actually just talked about that in our Revisions and Updates episode, which... People that are listening to this recording will have already heard, but people who are watching the live stream will be like, huh? Because that episode hasn't come out yet. Take our word for it. We discuss a little more detail about the collapse of the Space Invaders boom in our revisions and updates episode. So when the Space Invaders boom collapsed, the big question was, what happens next? What are we going to do? Oh, my God, what happens? So a game magazine actually went around and talked to these different organizations and were like, what would you do post Space Invaders? So this uh, theoretical science group at the University of Tokyo, these college students, took it upon themselves to create, like, the follow-up to Space Invaders in terms of something new that could be done. They came up with this game, Hyankyo Alien. There's more detail on its development, but we'll save that for some other time because we got to keep going. Basically, there are a couple of things that this game did that were very important. I mean, it is an early maze game, though I, I don't think that's particularly important. The main thing, though, is... The gameplay of Hyankyo Alien, its overhead view. The company Universal decided to take that same gameplay and flip it on its side so that it was side view and created a game called Space Panic. Space Panic has the exact same gameplay as Hyankyo Alien, except instead of moving around a maze, you're climbing ladders between different platforms because it's side view instead of overhead view. But then other than that, you're doing the same thing. You're digging holes to trap aliens. This is the very first platform game. It 
doesn't have all of the features that we would consider important to a platform game today because your only mode of movement is moving up and down between the ladders. But it's the first game where it's like, here's a series of platforms. They're all connected. Go around on these platforms and do something. It's the very first game to do that. Space Panic then goes on to inspire a lot of things. Load Runner is one game that is directly inspired by uh, Space Panic. Basically, a student named James Pretzanos, I think his name is. He didn't play Space Panic, but one of his friends kind of described Space Panic to him as a game that he saw in the arcade that was really cool. And then so James Pretzanos started creating his own version of that. And then later on, Douglas Smith took it over. So people know Douglas Smith as the father of Load Runner, but... He was actually the, the second guy to, to work with it. So that's all direct. Also, I mean, Donkey Kong very obviously takes some of its initial inspiration from a game like uh, Space Panic because Donkey Kong adds some wrinkles to it. And of course, we'll talk about that later. But the idea of navigating multiple platforms, the idea of ladders being one of the things you use to navigate those platforms, it's very clear that Donkey Kong owes a debt of gratitude to Space Panic, which owes a debt of gratitude to Hyankyo Alien. So the entire platform genre, as we know it, really gets its start because of these students that made this game Hyankyo Alien. All because of invaders going away. That's right. So that is why the game makes our list. How about we go for the game that you love and adore, but have no history on its development? Scramble. That's right. This is another thing we just talked about in our revisions and updates episode, which is why Jeff phrased it that way. I mean, we did talk about Scramble in our Konami episode. Our revisions and updates was only stuff that we talked about previously. I lamented in our revisions and updates episode that we don't know anything about it. It's the real beginning of the scrolling shooter. That's why it's on here. And since we don't know much about it, I can't say much more about it. So we'll be able to move on very quickly. It's the first game that propelled you through a series of stages uh, where the screen is constantly scrolling and pushing you forward and has you shoot at things as you go, and it even has something sort of akin to the bo- uh, boss at the very end of it. Though it's a boss in the sense that it's the end point of the game, but it's not a boss in the sense that it's a big scary monster that you have to kill. So Scramble is the game that inspires pretty much everything that comes after, and we're going to knock out a couple of games really fast here as part of this. Because there are two other games on our list. Xevious is the next game on our list. Scramble created a very brief fad for scrolling shooters. Like there were a half dozen clones of Scramble that came out right after Scramble did. In the early days of the industry, you always knew that a game was an influential and popular game by looking at the number of clones there were. It was counterfeited heavily because Konami was a very small manufacturer at the time. So there were a lot of just direct copies of it. But there were also a lot of clones like Cosmic Avenger from Universal and uh, Vanguard from SNK. The clones kind of all hit fast and furious, and then that kind of just petered out. But then Xevious comes along from Namco, and Xevious was inspired in large part by Scramble. They wanted to do for vertically scrolling shooters essentially what Scramble did for horizontal scrolling shooters. Xevious is the game that really launches the craze for shoot-em-ups in Japan. Scramble was popular, but kind of a brief fad. Xevious, with its uh, incredibly detailed backgrounds and its fast action, and it doesn't quite have bosses yet, 
but it has these mothership things that are bigger and take more hits to kill that occasionally show up that kind of serve as bosses. Xevious is the game that is hugely popular in Japan, and it directly inspires the entire next wave of shooting games in Japan from 1942 on to Gradius. That brings us to our next influential game, which is Gradius. Gradius, obviously, is an update of Scramble, so Scramble is an influence on it. But Xevious is also a direct influence on it, because basically what the creator of Gradius has said in interviews is, we wanted to do for the horizontal shooter what Xevious did for the vertical shooter. Xevious was the game that made vertically scrolling shooters blow up, become super popular, super big in the Japanese arcade. Gradius was an attempt to do the same thing for scramble-style gameplay. Gradius is also important because the early shooters, you would go through a series of stages, but then when you were through all the stages, you would just go back to the beginning at a higher level of difficulty. Most of the stages didn't have bosses. There'd be occasional kind of big enemies that you would fight here and there, but they weren't bosses as we think of them today. Gradius, I'm not saying it was necessarily first with all of these mechanics, but Gradius is the game that really created the understood foundation of what a scrolling shoot 'em up is. You go through a stage, that stage has a boss, you go through another stage, that stage has a boss, until the end of the game where you beat the game, yay, everybody's happy. It's also the first game that really concentrated on a power-up system. It's certainly not the first shooter with power-ups, not saying that. Even Vanguard, one of those scramble clones, had something that was akin to a form of power-up. But Gradius was the first popular game, at least, that had a whole system of upgrades and a way of progressing through and making your ship more powerful. And it actually stole that from RPGs. Obviously, we'll be talking about several RPGs as time goes on, but that was an example of an RPG mechanic improving your character, improving your equipment, coming over into an action game category. You know, the idea of power-ups, as we think of them today, really comes from RPGs and then into Gradius. So that's kind of our shmup trifecta from the early days of shmups. Between Scramble Gradius and Xevious, you kind of have all of the template for all of the shooting games that come after, and shooting games continue to be a big deal for a long time. They're not as big a deal today just because translating that into 3D, into polygonal graphics and uh, 3D worlds has been fraught. Some people have done it with varying levels of success, so it's not as big today as it was, but you don't get modern games if you didn't have this entire period where people were just gorging on, on shmups. So there's our shmup trifecta. Alrighty, and I guess if we're going to be fighting uh, everything in these games, We'll have to go with our next bit of fighting, Mortal Kombat. Mortal Kombat is here for two reasons. We've talked about the development of it in depth, so we'll make this fast. Mortal Kombat was really the first game, first fighting game of note. When I say first, some of the stuff won't be first, and that's fine. Remember, we're looking at chains of influence more than we're looking at actual who did what first. Mortal Kombat was the first game of note to really internalize the concept of combos. Street Fighter II had combos. Street Fighter II combos came about largely by accident. They started out as a bug. Now, once they saw the bug, they worked with that and kind of developed that a little bit. 
but Mortal Kombat was the first one to really be like, you want combos? We got combos. The whole juggling thing is in large part a Mortal Kombat phenomenon. So that's cool in terms of fighting games, and fighting games are still popular today. So that's worth mentioning. The other thing, of course, is we're not just talking about uh, mechanics of games. We're also talking about the growth and development of the industry and the controversy surrounding Mortal Kombat and the violence in Mortal Kombat was kind of the most important catalyst for the Senate hearings uh, that we've talked about before. The Senate hearings were the catalyst for the creation of both the ESA, as it's called now, wasn't called that then, which is the trade lobbying organization of the video game industry in the United States, and it was also the impetus behind the creation of the ESRB, the Electronic Software Rating Board, so Mortal Kombat is in large part directly responsible for the coalescence of these often squabbling and petty video game companies into being like, okay, we have to be a real industry. So it's kind of the moment the video game industry grew up and became a real industry. It's also the point that Nintendo realized that they had to grow up because then when Mortal Kombat came to console and they got squashed by the Sega Genesis because they didn't allow any of the fatalities and they turned the blood into sweat. That's what made Nintendo be like, okay, we're going to have to uh, relax some of our policies on content. So Mortal Kombat is really kind of the point where the industry grew up in a lot of ways. It's more for that than the actual gameplay that we feel it is one of the 100 most influential games of all time. And then I would guess hand-in-hand with that would be Street Fighter 2. Sure. So Street Fighter 2 is here for really launching the fighting game craze. I'm well aware that it's not the first one. Karate Champ was very popular in 1984-1985 and had a very formal karate tournament approach to fighting and is really the first kind of versus game. Yi'ar Kung Fu, which was a single-player game, not a multiplayer game, but it was a Konami game that had kind of a a fighting theme to it, and a lot of what Street Fighter did was actually derived from some of the stuff that ER Kung Fu did first. We're having to balance mechanics first versus impact first versus popularity first, and then narrow it down to 100 games. So there's like two or three more fighting games that I could have put on the list that came before Street Fighter 2 that I chose not to, because Street Fighter 2 is really the game that launched the fighting craze. It was by far the most popular video arcade game since the crash in the 1982-1983 time period. It sold tens upon tens upon tens of thousands of units into the hundreds of thousands of units when you talk about variants like Championship Edition and Turbo and all of the stuff that really was just Street Fighter 2, but just with some tweaks to it. It's the reason that there's still a very, very strong, dedicated fighting game community today that has terminants like Evo and, or Evo, however they pronounce it, and all of that. So this time we did decide to go with the game, even if there isn't any one particular mechanic that it pioneered, we went with the game that just launched the phenomenon, and that's Street Fighter 2. All right. Next on the list will be everyone's favorite cartoon, Dragon Slayer. Dragon Slayer. Of course, we talked about Dragon Slayer in depth in our Laser Craze episode. Dragon Slayer, in its own time, was a fad. You know, you can't say that it's important because it was a Laserdisc game. Because Laserdisc games were over and done with so fast 
that they don't matter as a genre. It was supposed to be the game that saved the arcade, but it didn't save the arcade because it was a flash in the pan. So you can't say that it was important because of its commercial impact either. I've got Dragon Slayer on the list for two reasons. They didn't use the term, but it was the first game that you could really call an interactive movie. That is, you had motion picture quality, in this case animated, not live action, but kind of motion picture quality visual or television quality visual. And you had a largely linear story playing out with pre-recorded scenes that you only occasionally had the ability to interfere with and change the course of things. That's kind of the beginning of the whole idea of the interactive movie. And interactive movies are very surprisingly making somewhat of a comeback. I mean, they're never going to be a big genre again the way they were big in the 90s because, as people discovered, interactive movie kind of gameplay only has very, very, very limited utility. There's only a very small number of scenarios where doing that kind of game works. You know, her story in uh, 2015 was very popular. There have just been a couple of games released this month that are getting a lot of buzz that kind of take the interactive movie approach. So Dragon's Lair deserves a pride of place for starting that whole concept, for better or for worse, where people were so enamored with the fact that, hey, we can have real people or real-looking animated people on screen, and that's amazing, but there's no gameplay. Doesn't matter, that's amazing. The other thing is, is it's really the beginning of the quick-time event. Because, of course, the limited gameplay that you do have is twitching the joystick in a particular direction at the exact right moment to have an outcome happen. So Dragon's Lair is, again, for better or for worse, the game that gave us, even though they didn't call it that at the time, the quick time event. The idea that this ain't a cutscene, press A. Press A. Only if his axe is on fire. But since we're going to be doing a (laughs) one-on-one combat here, why don't we cover one-on-one? I did not put a lot of sports games on here. Sports are very much their own thing. They kind of exist in their own world. First of all, uh, the purpose of a sports game is to be as good a representation of the sport as possible. You know, the influences in sports games are the real sports themselves rather than the games. And they tend to have a different audience, not in the sense that the audiences don't overlap at all, but there are a lot of people that are like FIFA players or Madden players, where that's really the only video games they play. They inhabit a completely different space from a lot of the games industry. Though, obviously, a lot of people that play other games also play FIFA and Madden as well. So there's not much sports in here. But I wanted to single out one-on-one, not so much for any gameplay innovations, but because this is really ground zero for the idea of presenting a sports product that is backed by a license with major sports personalities and having those major sports personalities provide some degree of input into the final game. Now, I'm well aware, because we're not about first, we're about chains of influence. I'm well aware that there was a Pele soccer game on the Atari VCS before one-on-one, that it's not the very first game to license a sports personality. And obviously, even before Pele Soccer, there were games like MLB Baseball and NFL Football on the Intellivision that were licensing sports organizations. 
But this is the game that through its success, because Pele's soccer was nothing about nothing, showed the power of attaching a sports personality to a sports game. It's the game that showed the utility of inviting those sports personalities in to participate to some small degree in what you're doing so that you can put some nice PR stories out about how Dr. J hung out at the uh, studio today and talked basketball with us. Dr. J did participate a little bit in terms of discussing his game. Larry Bird, the other personality in the game, didn't really interact at all, but Dr. J actually participated some. And since then, there's been ebbs and flows in that kind of thing. Sometimes sports personalities really are just a name. Other times they participate a little bit, like John Madden used to in John Madden football. And sometimes they participate every step of the way, like Tony LaRusa Baseball, which was done by Stormfront Studios back in the early 90s. I mean, he was like practically a co developer of that game. So the amount of participation varies, but the entire concept of having any kind of participation at all goes back to this game. And you really don't get EA Sports without this game, because after EA had success with one on one, They started applying the same thing to some other games, like Earl Weaver Baseball. And then Don Traeger, we talked about him in our EA Teenage Years episode, decided that he wanted to update one-on-one for a new generation, and Dr. J was replaced with Michael Jordan. At that point, he started formulating the marketing plan for what became EA Sports. So one-on-one deserves pride of place because the modern sports game ecosystem would not really exist in the same way if Electronic Arts had not done one-on-one. Let's go with Berserk. All right. So Berserk is one of these games on the margins. I could have easily not picked it and picked something else, but I had to make the tough choices. So this is one of the choices I made. Berserk is more important as a precursor to what comes after. So, you know, it's a maze game. They're robots. You shoot them. Evil Auto shows up if you linger on a screen too long and kills you. It inspired a few things. Our good friend Silas Warner re-enters the picture here because Silas Warner, after his Play-Doh days, went and became a commercial video game developer for Muse Software in the early 80s. He saw Berserk in an arcade and was like, I can do better than that with a maze game. And so then he went and created Castle Wolfenstein, which was a very early example of stealth gameplay and was also an inspiration for some part of Wolfenstein 3D. Not on the technical side of things, but on the setting and ambiance side of things. So it helped shape one of the very important first-person shooters. And it helped shape the very early days of the stealth genre, though. I don't honestly think that Castle Wolfenstein had a lot of influence on how the stealth genre developed after that, because I think that's more down to Metal Gear, which we'll get to later. That's one thread for Berserk. The other thread for Berserk is that Eugene Jarvis at Williams played Berserk and thought, hey, this is a really cool game, but it's kind of lame that I can't move and shoot at the same time. Then Eugene Jarvis was like, I'm going to fix that. Instead of one joystick, we're going to have two joysticks. And that brings us to our next influential game on the list. Because we put both Berserk and Robotron 2084 on here. I debated not doing that. I debated leaving Berserk off and going in another direction. But I decided that I'd keep Berserk on here because it does have the separate thread with Silas Warner and with Wolfenstein. And it's also another link between the early computer hacker indie scene 
and the commercial industry because Alan McNeil, in turn, was inspired by a series of robot chase games that appeared on many microcomputer platforms as type-in listings, where basically you were alone in a space with a bunch of robots. There are traps, hazards around the room that if the robots run into, they're destroyed. And every turn you move, it's turn-based, you move one space, and then the robots all move one space, taking the shortest path to get to where you are. And so the object is to use your movements to navigate the robots into the obstacles. That's how Berserk started. It started as a real-time version of that. He discovered that when you do that in real time, the whole make them collide with obstacles thing doesn't work because they move so fast that before you have time to get them into obstacles, they kill you. So that's when he added the shooting element to it. Understandable. So that's why I left Berserk in, even though I'm also doing Robotron. Those are a little bit similar. Robotron I have in here, not so much for the gameplay. The gameplay was great. It was adrenaline pumping, and it did influence later games. But the main thing is, it introduced Twin Stick. The idea that I move with this control and shoot with this control is something that really starts with Robotron. Again, there were a couple of games before that that had multiple joysticks. It's not about first, it's about chains of influence. But Robotron is the game that really solidified that idea. So the modern way of doing shooters, in which you have one stick for your movement and one stick for your aiming, it's not for your shooting anymore, but it's for your aiming. Every time that we use a twin stick control scheme, we owe a little debt of gratitude to Robotron 2084, because that was the game that showed us, hey, two sticks is better than one. That's true. Why not Pac-Man? Yeah, so Pac-Man, some people might put that in their top 20. I didn't put it in the top 20. Pac-Man is here because the entire idea of a video game character with its own personality starts with Pac-Man. Before that, we just had formless tanks and ships and random stick figures. Now we have characters that are marketable on their own, that can be merchandised the heck out of, and that's the beginning of the video game personality. Oh, it's one of the first instances of power-ups, too, with the power pill. We do like that. Which was uh, inspired by Popeye eating spinach and becoming strong. So, yay, power-ups. With power-ups, one can get better at defending things, so we'll go into Defender. Defender we can dispense with very quickly, because we already did all of the things that followed it. As we say in our Konami episode, in our Revisions and Updates episode, was Scramble directly inspired by Defender? Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. The important thing, though, is it was our first step into a larger world, because it scrolled. Yay, scrolling. Woohoo! Moving on. We're going to outrun it. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. Outrun. Outrun was very important, primarily because it showed how great motion could be. It was not the first. I know that. Obviously, Hang On came first from Sega, but Outrun was the bigger hit. Outrun was the game that showed us that driving games where you're just going for pure speed and pure adrenaline and not worrying about racing other cars could be very fun. So any game that involves just driving the heck out of things owes a small debt of gratitude to OutRun. But the main thing is those motion cabinets. That was kind of the beginning of the arcades getting involved in more and more and more elaborate full motion cabinets moving beyond just simple joystick controls and a simple monitor. So that was uh, transformational for the arcade. It was also the beginning of the end of the street location in the arcade and the move to larger and larger game centers and entertainment centers because your 7-Eleven A couldn't afford and B couldn't fit a cabinet like OutRun. 
So there's not many arcade games made today, but most arcade games made today do have some kind of gimmick to them. Many of those gimmicks are motion gimmicks, and we learned how fun that was from Hang On and OutRun. Yu Suzuki, very important guy. Alrighty. Next we will do is Pole Position. Pole Position really established what we think of as a racing game today, and that's why it's in here. Again, there are precursors you can point to, like Sega's Turbo. We're not about being first. But this is the game that cemented the classic view behind and ever so slightly above your race car. We're running around the track, and we're doing laps, and pretty much any racing game that came out after that in the 2D era owed a debt of gratitude of one degree or another to pole position, which was extremely, extremely popular. So that's why we've got pole position on the list. Well, if we're going to be popular, we're going to have to get some Renegades into this. Renegade is here because it was the real beginning of the scrolling beat-em-up. There were games before that where you scrolled and you hit things. Kung Fu, Spartan X in Japan, is probably the most significant example of that. What sets Renegade apart is Yoshihisa Kishimoto, who created that game, looked at the early scrolling beat-em-up type games like Kung Fu, and he said, well, you know, that's just kind of lame because he had been kind of a tough guy in his youth and he had gone around beating up other tough guys as a high school student. And he was like, well, you know, when you're really kick punching people, it's like that stuff's brutal and that stuff hurts and people don't just go down with one punch, you know, unless you're one punch man, I guess. So I'm going to create a game where, you know, it captures the brutality of street combat. And so that's what Renegade was. Of course, in Japan, it was not called Renegade. It was something, something, Kunio-kun, Japanese name. I could look it up, but, you know. We covered it before. Check out our fighting game. We're rebels here. We don't live by the rules. So, you know, he based it on his own youthful experiences of going around and beating up other gangs of high school students. When it was brought to the United States, they gave it a street feel, primarily inspired by the movie The Warriors, to give it a more international appeal. It was a coin flip, really, whether to do Renegade or Double Dragon here. Renegade put most of the basics in place. Double Dragon built on those basics by doing three important things, making it two-player, making it a scrolling, continuously from left to right experience instead of the fixed arenas of Renegade, and allowed you to use weapons discarded from enemies. So you could put Double Dragon here instead as the most influential, just because it solidified the formula. I think I even had Double Dragon on the list at one time instead. You might have earlier. But I decided to go with Renegade because that was the starting point for Kishimoto. And Double Dragon's only not on here because there is an arbitrary limit of 100 games. We can't put them all on. That's true. Won't we be here for the next two weeks? At least. I just wanted to point out a few home games that were of note from this very early time period. Manic Miner is one of them. We don't talk a lot about the British industry in this top 100 episodes or the European industry. The reason for that is that we're looking at things in a global context, and the United Kingdom and Europe had an absolutely amazing cottage industry that had some really great games in it. Some of them are some of the most amazingly influential games of all time. I mean, there will be at least a couple of British games on our top 20, so we're not ignoring them. But a lot of the incremental development in the British or European industry didn't necessarily have the same level of impact globally 
as stuff going on in the United States and Japan. So if this were a top 200 games list, you'd probably see more British games on it. But since it's top 100 list, we had to limit that a little bit. So Manic Miner is really here as a stand-in for the entire concept of the arcade adventure and the slash action game with some light puzzle solving and exploration elements. It's a huge category. We did a whole episode on it. It's definitely a category that has influenced the modern games industry. We just didn't want to include like four or five of those and show like the incremental development. So Manic Miner is kind of the beginning of that whole thing. Miner Willie has to uh, get from point A to point B while gathering objects on the way. It's the beginning of the concept that blossoms into the arcade adventure. Special shout out to Miner 2049er, which didn't make the list. It's the American game that inspired Matthew Smith to uh, create Manic Miner. But I wouldn't have wanted that to be the stand-in for a British genre because it was an American game that really wasn't an arcade adventure, whereas Manic Miner, and especially its sequel, Jet Set Willy, really set the stage for that idea of just because you're an action game doesn't mean you can't have puzzles and exploration as well. That's that. Metal Gear. We do have Metal Gear on our list of early influential home games. Woohoo! The entire stealth genre starts with Metal Gear. One could argue very convincingly that Metal Gear Solid is the more influential game. We did not include Metal Gear Solid on the list because space reasons. But obviously, Metal Gear Solid is more influential because it took it into 3D and polygonal stuff, and everything's 3D and polygonal these days. So in that sense, it's influenced more games and their stealth mechanics. But obviously, Kojima-san would not have made Metal Gear Solid if he had not first made Metal Gear. So I went with the first one. We talked about this in the Konami episode, but just very briefly, the whole reason we have stealth like this today is because the MSX is a very crappy platform for action games. Kojima had great aspirations to make these very cinematic, very uh, fully fleshed out video games because he was a frustrated movie creator wannabe. But he was not assigned to the arcade division with its fancy graphics or the NES division, which at least kind of works. He was assigned to the MSX division, where you could only have like three objects on the screen moving at one time. That may not be the exact technical specs, but it was very limited in how many sprites you could have going on at once. And then not only was he put on the lowest rung team, but then he was told, oh, and by the way, we need you to make an action game on a system that can't have more than three or four sprites moving around at the same time. So he was like, well, if I can only have a couple of moving objects, then rather than nonstop action, we have to have a game where there's almost no action, but it's still an action game. So that means you're sneaking around instead of shooting everything. And so we get the stealth genre. That's why we put Metal Gear on the list. That and nuclear weapons and long, long cutscenes. Oh, God. Really, Metal Gear Solid should be on the list for long, long cutscenes. And then Metal Gear Solid 4 should be on the list for how not to have... Oh, my God, so many cutscenes. <laughs> Somewhere out there, there is probably someone still watching a cutscene from Metal Gear Solid 4 that's been, like, watching one since the game came out. Because, oh my gosh. But we went with Metal Gear, uh, the one that started it all. Prince of Persia. Prince of Persia is incredibly important. I like to call them, this isn't an official term, but I like to call them cinematic platformers. And the defining features of kind of a cinematic platformer are that there's a great focus on the quality of the animation of the characters. 
in Prince of Persia's case, it was done through rotoscoping. And there's a great emphasis on puzzle-solving, exploration, and action all being melded together into a single uh, entity. And there's a lot of dramatics to it, as you would find in movies. Grabbing onto ledges and barely making it. Having epic one-on-one duels with enemies. Avoiding traps. All of that kind of very cinematic stuff. And, of course, Prince of Persia was very much inspired by Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones, kind of the opening sequence where Indy is navigating the temple and he's getting through all of these traps and then has to run out at the end before everything kills him. And this idea that Indiana Jones is a very vulnerable hero and if he makes a jump to a ledge, he just makes the jump. You know, he doesn't clear it, but he has to grab on and pull himself up, which was a very big part of Prince of Persia. So Prince of Persia is kind of ground zero for that kind of gameplay which I call a cinematic platformer. And the most direct analog, there are tons of games influenced by that, but Uncharted. The Uncharted series is a very popular series. Obviously, they're also pulling a lot from Indiana Jones, which is the same source of inspiration as Prince of Persia. Some of that is pulling from the same thing outside of the media. But the way Prince of Persia does platforming and the way Prince of Persia does action is the exact same way that more modern games like Tomb Raider and Uncharted chose to do their action. And a lot of that was taking direct inspiration from Prince of Persia. And some of that was also taking inspiration from Another World, which was another early cinematic platformer. But he was also partially inspired by Prince of Persia. So that entire oeuvre of action, platforming, puzzle gaming, drama, really all starts with Prince of Persia, and so that's why it is on our list of 100 most influential games. Sonic the Hedgehog. Sonic the Hedgehog is here because animal mascots are still a thing. The whole idea that you have a platform game where you're moving through levels often at high speed, and your mascot is an animal of some kind, starts with Sonic the Hedgehog, so... Crash Bandicoot and Spyro and James Pond and Arrow the Acrobat and Bubsy all kind of come out of that. And it becomes this huge, big genre of things in the 90s. It's not quite so big today, but companies like Insomniac and Naughty Dog that have done such important modern games got their start doing these kind of animal-based mascot games. Crash Bandicoot in particular was codenamed early in development Sonic's Ass, because the idea was that how do you translate that kind of gameplay into 3D? You put the character on a fixed path and put the camera directly behind him, so you're staring at the rear of the character the whole time. So there's a lot of influence there, even if the Sonic games themselves have not held up as well as Nintendo products have. Wing Commander. Wing Commander is there because that's when blockbuster PC gaming really started. You know, space sims aren't a big deal today, so in terms of its influence on modern games, there's a lot less. But Wing Commander was the first game that looked at the advances that had happened in PCs in terms of VGA graphics, in terms of sound cards, in terms of faster 486 processors, and then were like, okay, let's make use of all this stuff and show people what a PC can really do. It's the first game that really didn't care about catering to the lowest end of the low user. It's like they made this game unapologetically to run on a 486 processor, and if you're not with us, too bad. 
So it's one of the first games that really forced people to upgrade their hardware if they wanted to play it and was a game that was so good and so successful that people really would go out and upgrade their hardware to play it. It was the beginning of blockbuster PC gaming. It was the beginning of you really have to check what equipment you have in your computer because you may not be able to run this game with your computer. And they carried that forward. The second game was a very early move to CD-ROM and speech. The third game, of course, was a move to interactive movies, for better or for worse. So it was an industry pusher. It was a technology pusher. And that's why we have put it on our list, more so than for the actual gameplay, which is awesome. I love Wing Commander, but is not that influential on the modern gaming scene. But it had Mark Hamill in it. It did, and Malcolm McDowell. Love me some Malcolm McDowell. Last one on this list. Obviously, there'll be some more early console games. There's some very obvious ones missing. We do have a top 20 coming. Super Mario Kart. I went a couple of different ways here. I almost went F-Zero, because F-Zero directly inspired Mario Kart. And then I almost went with the Famicom racing game that inspired F-Zero, because that's kind of the beginning of this chain. But then I was like, well, okay, those may be the beginning of the chain, but Mario Kart is the definitive game in the chain. Mario Kart is the prototypical kart racer, where you get a bunch of friends together, you have a bunch of mascots from various games, and you have them race, and you have them chuck items at each other, too. It started out, as we talked about in our driving game episode or something, it basically started out as a two-player F-Zero. They wanted to make that game two-player but they discovered that the big, long levels of F-Zero were too processor-intensive and too memory-intensive to do if you were also doing split-screen. So they decided that instead of those big, long courses, they had to make little, tiny courses with lots of twists and turns in them. And if they were doing that, it didn't make sense to have big, futuristic racing ships. So let's make them carts instead, go-karts. And then later on, they added Mario characters. You know, it's the game that kind of starts that whole kart racing thing. Obviously, it goes beyond kart racing too. Wipeout, which was a major important system seller in the early days of the PlayStation, was inspired because Nick Burkham was playing Mario Kart with the sound turned off and he had like techno music that he was listening to while he was playing it. And he discovered that that was a really intense and amazing combination. And so he made a futuristic racer with weapons and high speed and techno music and club scene music. And that was important to how the PlayStation developed. Obviously, Mario Kart's still around today and still very successful. You know, you could say F-Zero's the uh, ground zero for that. No pun intended, because it's a really bad pun and I wouldn't do that on purpose. And if we were doing 200 games, we'd definitely include both F-Zero and Mario Kart. But I could only choose one. So, Mario Kart. All right, so that's what we call the action at home category. Now we have another home category as well, and this one is more focused on adventure games. Well, if we're going to do adventure games, we must start off with adventure on the 2600, right? Sure. You know, that one goes without saying really where its influence comes from. Warren Robinette saw the text adventure, adventure, was like, this is really cool. I want to do it on console. How do I get a game that's like, I don't know how much it was but well over 100K at least. How do I do that on a console that has 128 bytes of RAM? Well, you make it more action-y. 
instead of having uh, typing commands to pick up objects, you just scatter objects around the screen and have the player pick them up. You emphasize rooms that are linked together and somewhat maze-like, so people have to wander around finding stuff. You have that action element to occasionally have to kill things. So the entire concept of the console adventure game as we know it is uh, really starts with adventure. The chains of influence here are so hard to pinpoint because any chain of influence comes from people that don't talk about things. You figure that adventure probably inspired Attic Attack, which was done by Rare and was such a huge influence on what happened in arcade adventures in Britain. You figure that The Legend of Zelda had to be partially inspired by adventure because how could it not be? Legend of Zelda might have been inspired partially by Attic Attack as well, but Miyamoto never really talks about influences for The Legend of Zelda, so we don't know. So it's a bit speculative, but you figure games like Legend of Zelda wouldn't have existed in the same way if adventure hadn't come first. I think the main kind of hint of that is that like the code name of Legend of Zelda, because they were making Super Mario Brothers and Legend of Zelda at the same time, the initial code name for Legend of Zelda, I believe, was like Mario Adventure or something like that. Not that they were necessarily planning to use Mario, but it's just very early days and they had both games going. So if they themselves are using Adventure in the code name for the game, then they were probably aware of Adventure. You would hope anyway. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the whole Easter egg thing. It's not the first game with a hidden message, but it's the game that first captured people's imagination. It's the game which the term Easter egg is derived, because when Steve Wright, the head of the programmers, was asked about the hidden room in Adventure, he talked about how it was like a little Easter egg. So that's how the whole term came into being. So you don't get these little hidden things in games and even other forms of pop culture that aren't games. Someone would have hid something in something, even if Adventure hadn't. But the entire concept of an Easter egg and the name attached to an Easter egg comes from Adventure. Clearly, you have to include that on the list of the uh, 100 most influential games. Of course you do. According to Ethan, Zelda was originally just called Adventure. Iwata says Mario Adventure, but that's not what the sheet says. Gotcha. So that's a good clarification. So I appreciate that from Ethan Johnson, friend of the show. Which, of course, keeps our, our same point, though, that they were calling it Adventure in the early days. And it's not intuitive to call a game like that an adventure game. The only reason we call games like that adventure games are because of the text-based adventure and the console-based Warren Robinette adventure. So you figure the only reason they're calling it that is because they were aware of the previous adventures. Since we're talking about Zelda so much, we might as well just get into The Legend of Zelda, even if I can't play the randomized version of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, Legend of Zelda just kind of submitted that kind of gameplay. Adventure was kind of a one-off. Well, it's not so much that it was a one-off so much as the games that immediately followed it were games like Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T., which were just bad. So Adventure was the starting point for the console adventure concept. But Legend of Zelda is the game that kind of everyone emulates today. The idea that you run around over an overworld, that you descend into dungeons, that you have to do some light puzzle solving, that you gather items, and that these items allow you to progress to further areas in the world, all of that really comes from The Legend of Zelda. And any kind of game today that has those kind of adventure mechanics is really drawing more from Zelda than from adventure. So you have to include The Legend of Zelda. One could have even 
theoretically included that in the top 20, but we didn't. We chose other games. We're horrible people. Clearly important. Horrible people. Well, if we're going to continue this adventure trend, let's go with King's Quest. So I'm going to back you up on this one. We'll start with Mystery House and then go to King's Quest. So you'll notice that there's no text adventures on the list here. I don't think it's any surprise to anybody that adventure is going to be in our top 20. We kind of leave the whole text adventure thing aside. I didn't include any other pure text adventures on the list because adventure inspired all of them. And the text adventure thing ended up being a dead end. So in terms of modern games, you could put on a list, you could put on some influential text adventures, but there's really not a point in this context. Mystery House, of course, is the crossing over point. Mystery House is the point where somebody was like, let's do a text adventure. Let's do rooms to explore and items to pick up and puzzles to solve and all of this interaction being done by typing commands in a parser. But let's also add pretty pictures to it. Once graphics entered the picture, forevermore did they dominate the destiny of adventure games and computer games in general. Not that people don't sometimes do games all in text, and there is an adventure, a text adventure community that makes new games and whatnot, you know, an indie community. But it's really all about the graphics. Mystery House was the first game that showed that you could do that on the early 8-bit platforms where you could have these full pictures. It was stick figures. I considered putting The Wizard and the Princess on here instead, because that was the follow-up game to Mystery House, and instead of having just stick figures and monochrome graphics, it used draw-and-fill commands, so you had full-screen colorful pictures. They weren't very good pictures, but they were full-screen and colorful. It was also a far more successful game than Mystery House was in terms of sales, so it's probably the more influential, but... uh, Mystery House was first, so this time I went with the one that was first instead of the one that was a little bit more influential. Alrighty. Because there are no rules. I make the rules. I am the law. I decide. I am the decider. Mystery House and Wizard of the Princess then lead directly into King's Quest, which Jeff mentioned. Obviously, the big thing here is instead of just pictures, we have animation. King's Quest was the first game that really showed you could have a three-dimensional cartoon-like world that you could explore. We talked about this in our Sierra episode, but it's not just that you had full-screen graphics. It's not just that you had a character that moved around and was animated instead of static screens, but it's also the fact that you had layers. So if there was a bush in the foreground and you walked behind it, you disappeared behind it. It was this idea that you kind of had a living cartoon-like world. That really started, to a large degree, with King's Quest. So that's kind of the next evolution of the adventure game. Uh, Another reason I could have put Wizard and the Princess on here instead of King's Quest would have been that Wizard of the Princess was the game that caused IBM to ask uh, Sierra to do King's Quest on the PC Junior. So it more directly led to King's Quest than Mystery House did. Either way, that's King's Quest. Now, the other major legacy of these Mystery House game in particular is that Mystery House came over to Japan. And Mystery House and some of the following games, like Wizard and the Princess, were huge in Japan. Really, really big. And it's those games that caused Yuji Horii and Koichi Nakamura to team up and do the next influential game on our list, Portopia Serial Murder Case. Uh Uh-oh. 
This is one that is in no way important in the United States, or I should say is not well known in the United States, because this was pretty much just a Japanese game. It was an adventure-style game that was uh, derived from what was going on in the United States, but with some improvements in terms of interaction. Uh, There was a conversation system with branching dialogues. They kind of combined some more story-driven elements in with the kind of typical adventure game. And then they also, it was originally a PC game, but it was ported to the Famicom. Uh, The original used a parser, but when they ported it to the Famicom, they moved to a point-and-click kind of interface with commands uh, that you selected with the controller, because obviously you couldn't do a parser on the Famicom. I mean, you could, but the way of doing it would be to, you know, like when you're entering your name at the beginning of Legend of Zelda, have the alphabet up there and have you select the letters one by one. Let's not do a game like that. So, Portopia Serial Murder Case really is the ground zero point for the divergence of the Japanese adventure game from the American adventure game. Because just as RPGs, which we get to later, evolve in a different direction in Japan when they take something from the West and kind of turn it back around, Portopia is the beginning of the process of taking the adventure game and redefining it in the terms of an aesthetic that the Japanese like. And what they did is, while American adventure games got more and more complex in terms of the puzzle solving and the command lists and all of this kind of stuff, Japanese games kept slimming it down and making it more and more simple in terms of those kind of mechanics and making it really focused on narrative, really focused on talking to people, and then occasionally having some puzzles or some inventory-based stuff to do in between all of this other stuff you're doing. That reached its first mature form with the next game on our list that I will horribly mispronounce, Otogirisu. As I said, Kuichi Nakamura worked with Yuji Hori to create Portopia Serial Murder Case for Enix. Nakamura then had his own company, Chunsoft, which eventually became a publisher. And uh, one of the earliest games that they did, uh, published under their own label as opposed to doing contract work with someone else, was this game, Otogorisu, which they called a sound novel. A sound novel. Yes, that's what they called it. And that's because most of it is just reading text, like a novel, progressing through branching narratives. And then it has music and sound effects. So they called it a sound novel, but those kind of games have gone down in history as visual novels. The visual novel is a huge genre in Japan. It's less huge in the United States, but in the Japanese context, it's a hugely important genre. Otogorisu is usually considered kind of the first visual novel. As with any of that stuff, you can say there's this analog, there's this precedent. Uh, Certainly, Portopia Serial Murder Case is considered a big part of how this all started, which is why it's on our list. Yeah, that, that, so that's why we've got Totogorisu on there. Uh, you know, probably in terms of the West, the most popular visual novel type series is the Phoenix Wright series. Those are visual novels. There's a little bit of puzzle solving that you have to do in terms of using the right inventory item at the right time, but it's mostly just about, you know, observing the world, reading text, meeting characters, talking to characters. That's a very visual 
novel kind of thing. We chose those two games to kind of recognize the progression of that particular genre into the present day. Alrighty. Well, since we're going to have to use items at the same time, or at the right time, and it eventually leads to one of my favorite adventure games, we'll go with Maniac Mansion. So I could have gone two ways here again. I could have chosen Maniac Mansion, or I could have chosen The Secret of Monkey Island. Both of them are an important part of the puzzle in the way the adventure game developed, but I didn't really have room to put both of them on there. So I chose to go with Maniac Mansion, but Maniac Mansion was entirely a response to the way adventure games were done at that point, by which I mean using a parser. Whether they were text-based, whether they were graphical, whether they were animated, they all, for the most part, still used a parser. I know, again, there are some precedents. You have the stuff going on with Deja Vu and Shadowgate and all of that at ICOM simulations, so there's other stuff. But, again, Maniac Mansion is kind of considered the watershed game for this. Ron Gilbert did not like the parser, so Ron Miller created a system where you had a bunch of verbs and you had a bunch of objects you could click on on the screen, and then you just matched verb and object to do something. So that was kind of a watershed moment in the development of adventure games. Why I could have used Monkey Island instead is that the other thing that uh, that Ron Gilbert did, he was one of the first people to really focus in on what actually is good adventure game design. Adventure games had been around for like a decade at that point, but they had a lot of problems from a modern design sensibility. You died all the time. It was very easy to get into a zombie state where because you did not do something early in the game, you're unable to do something later in the game, but you don't know that for hours. You have puzzles that aren't often tested very well and sometimes are ridiculously hard or obscure or take a lot of leaps of faith and kind of trying to figure out psychology of the person creating the puzzle, stuff where the game itself doesn't present all of the knowledge you need to solve puzzles. Ron Gilbert rebelled against all of that kind of stuff, and he decided that he would make adventure games that were fairer and more balanced and, quite frankly, just better designed. He started that process with Maniac Mansion, but Maniac Mansion was not the perfect representation of that. There were still ways to die or permanently lose the game, like being imprisoned. There were still zombie states. There weren't many because he really tried hard to eliminate them, but there were still one or two zombie states you could get yourself into, dead ends. So Monkey Island was kind of the full flowering of his philosophy, and it set adventure gaming down a completely new path. Again, Maniac Mansion was the one that started it, and it's the one that started pointy and clicky on the screen instead with a much better system than ICOM had, quite frankly. And so it gets pride of place on these top 100. We'll go back to the Nintendo with a good old classic, Metroid. Actually, instead of just doing Metroid, we'll take our last two here together. These are our 39th and 40th games in our first episode. We made it, guys. I debated just doing one or the other and finally decided to just do both of them. Yeah, that's part of the reason why one of these lists will never be perfect, because sometimes when I choose, when I have the opportunity to do one or the other, I do both, and other times I pick one. You really need 500 games, but that series of episodes would never end. That would just be like our new podcast then. It's a spinoff. That's right. But I included them both, and that's Metroid and Symphony of the Night. Metroid, 
is distinct from your Zelda type of game, adventure game, because of the real emphasis on backtracking. That's kind of the main thing that Metroid adds over and above something like Legend of Zelda. That's not to say that you never backtrack and re, uh, re-explore in a Zelda game, but you have an overworld in a Zelda-type game. And yeah, you can't reach all portions of the overworld at the beginning. You sometimes need new items to unlock portions of the overworld, though in the original Zelda, that's actually not true. In the original Zelda, you can basically go wherever you want. You'll just find enemies that'll, like, kill you. All of them. So, you know, you're, you're re-exploring the overworld, but, like, once you enter a dungeon... With very rare exceptions, like the Desert Dungeon in Ocarina of Time, once you enter a dungeon, and assuming that you've already gathered all of the things out in the world that you need to progress in the dungeon, you know, you do the dungeon from start to finish, and then you move on to the next dungeon. Metroid, of course, is all about the backtrack. You'll find your progress blocked here, you'll find your progress blocked here, you'll find it blocked here, you'll go down this path, you'll get this item, now your progress is unblocked. The original Metroid had a little less of that than, say, Super Metroid did. You did have blocks to your exploration, but there were not quite as many of them. But again, you know, it's kind of hard to do Super Metroid instead of Metroid, because Metroid is the one that started it, and Super Metroid's just the one that built it up to the nth degree. It brought it, arguably, to perfection. Exactly. So, Metroid introduces this idea of you're exploring a world, but it's a world with lots of blocks to your progress. Uh, You have to find items to progress, and then you have to do a lot of backtracking to discover new areas. Symphony of the Night added a couple of things to that. It added more RPG elements, like leveling up and buying items and all of this. And it's really the game that launched the modern craze for this kind of thing. There's a reason it's not called a Metroid-like, but is called a Metroidvania. I know a lot of people hate that term, but Right now, it's the term we have. And that's because there were a few games that followed in that tradition, but it's really Symphony of the Night that caused an explosion in games of that type. Because Metroid was never very popular in Japan. It was always more popular in the U.S. than it was in Japan. Symphony of the Night gained kind of more universal popularity and led more developers down that path. And the Metroidvania, you know, today... I don't have a real number, but like 60%, which is a fake number, but I'm going to use it anyway, 60% of the indie games out there today are either roguelikes or Metroidvanias. Those are like the two genres that everybody wants to do. So we have Metroid and Symphony of the Night both here to represent that dawning of the Metroidvania. Not to mention that with uh, Symphony of the Night, it really popularized the whole multiple ending thing. Absolutely. All right. So is that all of them? All 40? That's right. We made it. We will see you next time when we cover the next 40 games in episode 99 of our top 100 most influential games. Next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Alex's book They Create Worlds The People and Companies That Shape the Video Game Industry Volume 1 can now be pre-ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com Our Twitter is TCW Podcast 
please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 